We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the deviants. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. The fuck is a locomotive? I, I think it's a brand of IUD. I don't, I don't really know. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, what are you doing here, buddy? Well, Marvel asked me to write some taglines for this new film they're doing. It's, um, oh, shoot. Brr. Oh, The Eternals. The Eternals. Wow, Eternals? Congrats, buddy. That's a huge movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you mind if I just run some by you? I'm so sorry to like, I know we got to record the podcast, but I just want to get some of this. You may, but I get a 10% commission here. You got it, buddy. All right, cool. All right, here we go. Uh, how's this? This looks like a job for the Eternals. Up, up, and Kumail. I mean, I like it, but they just feel a little familiar. Well, I don't know what you... Are you just bumming off Superman? Well, I mean, I was thinking since the Eternals is basically Marvel's take on Superman, it, it feels broken. It's less me stealing, and it's more of an homage. I thought it was pronounced homage. Uh, no, well, it's like what I'm doing is like I'm kind of reappropriating Superman tropes to mix it together into a collage of sorts. Like a stew. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a stew. Like a hot superhero stew. A super stew. A super stew. Yeah. A superhero. You know what? Stu I'm going to write that down. Do you mind if I try and put that in? 10%. Of course. Okay. As long as the business is taken care of, the party can be in the back. I got all I need. Let's start the show. Okay. Let's start the show. Uh, let's see. What do I say here? Oh boy. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. How about, um, uh, Look, it's a podcast. Look, it's a podcast <laughs> named Galaxy Brains. And today, the long-awaited epic Eternals with Polygon's very own Susanna Polo. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's own personal drink, Jonah Ray. Each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, giving us a marvelous education is Polygon Comics editor, Susanna Polo. Hey, uh, Kylie? Uh, yeah? Can we cool it on the puns here? Never! Stand your ground, queen. Okay, well, uh, let's just uh, get back to it. Let's see what else is in the script. Uh, we are eternally grateful to have Susanna on the show. But before we have a Richard, Richard maddening good time. Yes, queen. We have to give ourselves a Gemma chance to <laughs> nail down the facts of this film. Fuck, yes, 
Kylie! With a little segment called Logic Brain. Jesus Christ, I don't quit. I'm fired. Yas and, Queen. Yas and. All right. UCB 101 over here. Before we tunnel too deep into the world of Eternals, we have to pause here to give those of you who haven't seen the movie a chance to fly, fly, fly off into the great unknown. That's right. If you haven't seen Eternals, we're going to completely spoil the movie from stem to stern. Now's the time. Just walk away. Just walk away from the gasoline. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can write it off on your taxes. All right. You were warned. You were warned many times with many different jokes. So here we go. Eternals is the latest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, introducing us to a whole new cosmic corner of the franchise. Eternals follows a group of immortal beings tasked with protecting humanity from the monstrous deviants. Because the Eternals live forever, they've seen the evolution of human society, from cave dwellers to the development of the atomic bomb and the invention of the iPhone. They also saw all 33 seasons of The Simpsons. Don't! I hear Sprite's favorite season is five. The Eternals are commanded on their mission by the mysterious, all-powerful Erishim, a celestial, one of the creatures responsible for the creation of all life in the galaxy. This is already getting pretty heavy. Yeah, Eternals is a lot more than just a thrilling superhero romp. It asks a lot of philosophical questions about the nature of existence, but none more crucial than the biggest of all, why are we here? Why indeed, Dave, for the Eternals, they come to find their true purpose on Earth is to prepare the human race to be turned into dinner for a brand new celestial named Tiamat in an event called The Emergence. This does not sit well with most of the Eternals who have come to love humanity over the course of centuries. They also learn that they were not born, they were created by Erishim and all of their memories were implanted. So they decide to try, against all odds, to stop the emergence and save humanity. I think Sprite just wants to live to see the final episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> I'm not even sure the Eternals will live long enough to see that. So you think a mass extinction event could occur before The Simpsons ever gets canceled? I think The Simpsons will still be on the air after a mass extinction event. I'm telling you, Jonah, Disney has a contingency plan for everything. Well, you know who else had a plan? Our favorite flying Eternals man, Icarus, played by Game of Thrones' Richard Madden. Icarus is incredibly dedicated to his mission on Earth and refuses to betray Arashem, even if that means killing the Eternals' leader, Ajax. Ajax. Yeah, because some of them say Ajax. <laughs> no, it's Richard Maddening. <laughs> oh, wait, hey, there you go. You're getting into the oh, pun oh, game. Oh, it's in my brain now. Ah, the worms, the worms. <laughs> Icarus. Evening, ladies. So he kills Ajax, and he's turning his back on the love of his life, Cersei, played by Gemma Chan. Icarus ends up being something of the villain of the film as he's completely incapable of defying his programming. He can't deviate from his purpose and opposes the other Eternals' efforts to stop the emergence. Obviously, he fails. Cersei saves the day and kills Tiamat before he can pop out of the Earth's core and eat everything. That doesn't sit well with Erishim, who has to decide how to punish Cersei and the other rebel Eternals. Also... In the post-credit sequence, Harry Styles shows up as Thanos' very not-purple brother, Eros, alongside his assistant, Pip the Troll, played by former Galaxy Brains guest, Patton Oswalt. Jonah, Eternals has two former Galaxy Brains guests. If we can just get Angelina Jolie, we'll have scored a Marvel hat trick. But I think we'd have a better chance, and maybe even a better time, by getting Barry Keoghan, one of my favorite actors. Okay, we can talk about booking the show later, uh, all right? Right now, we need to expand the scope of our thinking in a segment we call Critical Brains. 
I really want to talk about Barry Keegan all the time, Jonah. Yeah. What a great performance by this guy is Druig. He's great in this movie. Just like so cool. He's great in everything. I mean, Killing of a Sacred Deer, he was amazingly creepy. He's amazing in Ducker because he plays such a sweet kid. He's just an incredibly malleable actor who I've like read up on and has had, he had a really tough life growing up and has according to, and you know, just full disclosure, one of the stars of this movie is my pal, Kumail Nanjiani. We've worked together a bunch. I had no idea. And we're really good friends. So I want to say, Kumail has also said, like, this guy couldn't have been sweeter. And it's it's this thing that he even mentioned, and this is no secret, when you see him up close, he has a lot of uh, scars on his face from, like, how rough and tumble his life was on the streets. Yeah, he brings that out to this character who is, he's got his head in the right place or his heart in the right place. But he's tortured by that responsibility that he thinks that he has. Yes. To be sort of a ward for humanity. And he's smug, but he's got some real pain and anguish that he's kind of holding down. And it comes out in his really great performance. Kingo, the movie star. I've directed some things, too. This is a great cast. This might be one of the best casts that Marvel's ever put together. And that's that's just beyond Kumail, who obviously we're in the bag for for a variety of reasons. But he's awesome in this movie. There's no reason to deny that he's like such a fun presence when he shows up and a total star in this movie. As you guys know, I went to see it at a public screening with Kumail and a few of our friends. We all put on Kingo shirts that uh, his wife Emily bought for everybody. And he did a introduction uh, where he thanked everybody for coming out and supporting independent cinema. Uh, but it was truly great to see a guy that I know that's really put in the work with, you know, not only his body, which is everyone can see that, like, and that's another thing I want to kind of point out with this stuff is that, yeah, in real life, he does look super jacked, like more jacked than like your average person. But I'm not sure. And Dave, tell me if I'm wrong here, but seeing him on screen with other people that are in peak physical condition, it didn't look <laughs> weird, right? Of course not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's very funny to think about. It's a great point because like it put him and I next to each other and people will be like, who is this slab of disgusting fetid meat <laughs> next to this beautiful God from Mount Olympus? Like, of course he's going to stand out amongst the normies, but that that's why people go to the extremes that they do to be in great shape is because that is what pops off of a movie screen. And yes, he looks super awesome and cool in this movie. And he's funny and he's sad and he's sweet. And like uh, his, his action moves are great. The, uh, his, you know, finger guns were amazing. And I'm, I think it was great, but I'm also, I'm incredibly biased, but um, having acted with Kamala Tun, performed with them every week for seven years on our show, to see him on there and just to kind of almost get lost and go like, oh, I wasn't even at some points watching my friend on a movie screen. I was watching, you know, Kingo. Oh, Karan, he's worked with me for 50 years. I trust him completely. Actually, when we first met, he thought I was a vampire and he tried to stake me through the heart. I've apologized so many times. Not quite enough times. Very close, though. I'll let you know. I want to give a special shout out to Harish Patel, who plays his manager. Oh, he was amazing. Now his manager, his valet. You're right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm just looking at my notes and it says manager. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to yell at myself from the past for getting that No, he wrong. was his valet, which just like, <laughs> makes it like that much more of a like a funny dynamic. There's a great Batman and Alfred joke in there where they call him Alfred. We've seen this dynamic before in the Marvel Universe with Happy, John Favreau's character. The more modern version of that was was Jarvis in, in Iron Man, where he was a computer instead of a butler. Yes. In the comic books, Jarvis is similar to Happy in, in terms of like being his sort of consigliere. 
Happy takes on a bigger role because Jarvis is just a computer in the movies. But yeah, there's a there's a long line of superheroes with sidekicks like that. Uh, I like to think of me as your sidekick, Jonah. No, I'm your sidekick. I thought that's what we established. No, 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 no. no, no, no. I'm pretty sure. No, no, I, I, I checked. <laughs> I told you not to look at the IMDb star meter anymore. All right, you're. I just can't help it. It's just like three in the morning. I wake up. It's like, where am I? Where am I? Uh, 157,000. Okay, well. But on. let's talk about some of the other cast as well, because Barry's great, Kamel's great, but then also um, Brian Tyree Henry. Yes, Fastos. You know what's never saved the planet? Your sarcasm. Fastos, super good in this. Also Paperboy in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited for Atlanta to come back. He blows my mind every time he's on screen in that show. Yeah, he was kind of the nerd of the group, so he had you know a lot of lines, but they also gave him some great, like, it's like, I'm going to put this thing together and make it so this thing happens and I'll call it. He has a lot of those lines more than anybody. He's the Scotty. Yeah, him and Kumail really carry the flag for the kind of standard Marvel tone, which is, you know, kind of fast talking and fun banter. And this is a, a big departure from that in a lot of ways. It's not a complete departure, but it is a movie that's more contemplative and uh, maybe a little bit more wistful and kind of sad. There's a lot of sort of heaviness that uh, is over this movie that um, is different than what I think people expected. That's why Chloe Zhao was such a great choice to direct this because she's all over this. Like you could really feel her style in these shots. It's like things are a little darker, the dusk in the background, the camera movements, all very indicative of her style of shooting and letting characters sit with each other and letting characters kind of be with each other. That's what she's amazing at, you know? And I think she brought a lot of that to this, which maybe made it for a very different tone from many other Marvel movies. I mean, this was, it kind of at points was just like, and I don't say this in a negative way, a meandery indie movie at points. Yeah, that can be a virtue. When we've seen the very bright and quippy kind of Marvel movie so many times, you have to take chances. Otherwise, people can get sick of it. And so the, this was an opportunity for them to kind of break out of that. And, and one of the scenes that I really want to point out, that was a talking point quite a bit, pre-release that I think people either they hadn't seen the movie or they misunderstood it is the scene where Fastos sees the explosion of the atomic bomb over Hiroshima and he weeps you know he, he falls to his knees and he weeps over what he's helped create and a lot of people are like oh what are the Marvel superheroes created the atomic bomb what's wrong with these people it's like well that's the point of the movie, right? Yes, yeah. You know, the point of the movie is that Arishim has created the Eternals to prepare the planet for consumption by Tiamat, the celestial that's growing inside of the planet. So what they're there to do is not to save the human race, to protect them. It is to develop them, to have them create weapons of war and technology and things of this nature so that there's more energy on the planet. The more people there are and the more technology there is, the more energy Tiamat can consume to destroy the planet. So this was all stuff that they were programmed to do. And that's kind of the point of the movie, which is people are programmed to do things that they might not want to do, thinking that they're doing it for the right reason. Yes. And the entire, the character arc for every Eternal, except for, I guess, Icarus, is figuring out that what they were programmed to do is not the right thing. And I think that's something that we all go through, you know, as you get older, you realize, oh, my programming was not correct. I was not supposed to be this way. And uh, I think there are a lot of people in the world who have a hard time accepting that what they learned when they were 12 is not what's true when they're 40. And you're seeing a lot of, I don't know, 
comedians <laughs> go through that experience. Exactly. This is how this is how I've made money. This is how I get laughs. And you're saying it's wrong now. Yeah. That's the what comedians are going through. And I also think that as regards to the storytelling of the movie, where there's so much piping that has to be done with this story and these people and where they're from and what they're doing and how long they've been there and all this stuff. And you know why they're there. And then all of a sudden, when you find out it's like all a lie, I think that's so good because it was kind of like the audience and the characters get the rug pulled out from under them at the same time. This is a movie about self-actualizing and these characters self-actualize as the movie goes on. They realize, oh, I'm not just my mission. So it's a really interesting movie when you think about it in those sorts of contexts of, of like self-actualization and understanding your purpose. It's also a movie where characters have sex. That's true. <laughs> I would like to point out that this is the first time we've ever seen a, a sex scene in a, a Marvel movie, as far as I can remember. I was not ready for that. I was not ready. I was. Oh, my pants were fully down. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just well, kidding. You know, they're, they're kissing. They're kissing for a while. And I was like, all right. But then when it you know cuts to them on the ground, I was like, this is, I haven't seen this in a while. Yeah. Well, we really needed to know that these two characters loved each other in a very sincere and serious way. Because the love between Cersei and Icarus is what carries us through the whole movie. It's the it's the the crux of the film. But I, I couldn't stop thinking about this when the movie was over. Icarus and, and Cersei have intercourse. They do not procreate, correct? The Eternals do not have children. No, they do not. They are robots. So did Erishim program them to fuck each other? And if so, did he also feel like it was cool if they fucked humans? What well, this is, uh, I'd imagine, so th if they are computers, they are learning computers. And so therefore, it's like, how do we know how to have sex? So someone had to teach them. Maybe. They might have been the first beings on the planet to make love. Here's an idea. Here's a thought. What if the Eternals taught human beings how to have sex? Ooh. Okay. What if, what if they were like, all right, so <laughs> Fastos gets a chalkboard out. He's like, here's how it works. You know how they like Sprite showed him like stories? Well, it's Fastos showing them like, here's how to fuck. That's an interesting point. If every animal on the planet didn't just instinctually know how to fuck. Yeah. These gods come down and be like, you guys are doing it all wrong. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I hate to be that guy, but I got some notes. I got some notes. <laughs> like if somebody comes up to you after a stand-up set, they're like, I really love that joke you did about grocery shopping, but I haven't thought about the tag. So the Eternals are the original Pornhub commenters. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is also the first Marvel movie to feature a... LGBTQ superhero. Fastos, who we talked about a lot on this episode, has a husband and a child. And um, I thought it was handled incredibly well. Uh, I thought uh, it had a lot of pathos. Uh, some of the relationships in Marvel movies feel a little forced. But this, this had a, a real lived-in quality. And uh, I thought they handled this sort of debut, this introduction, very, very well. Yes. It was very nice and just kind of, it just happens. I mean, there was a bit of the, and this is, could just be me going like, it's like, well, we still got to make them kind of masculine. So have one fixing a bike and one playing football. Football, baby. It's Sunday afternoon. Get yeah, out Yeah, one there. of them should have been like grilling steaks. <laughs> fixing a car, lifting weights, smoking cigarettes. That guy's tough. Oh my God. But yeah, I thought that was really well done. And uh, again, Brian Tyree Henry, who is just a phenomenal actor, did such a good job with that. And, you know, having his motivation come from, 
wanting to save his family, also a family he knows for a fact that he will watch grow old and die in front of him. But he wants to experience it, you know, and he loves them and he cares about them. At least he got the time. You know, that's what it's all about is living in the in the present, in the moment and, and being a good person to each other. And that's that's in the movie here. Speaking of time, though, when they were in ancient Mesopotamia, this is like one of the things that I brought it up to Kamel. I was just like, all right, hold on. What the fuck? It was when they were doing the sign language. And one of the characters that signs the really fast one, which is, by the way, the best I've seen of like super speed on camera. Oh, you mean Makari? Yes. Played by Lauren Ridloff, who is the first deaf Marvel superhero. She uh, did a great job, but there was a scene when they're signing with each other and the, when they sign time, they pointed at their wrist and they're in ancient Mesopotamia. They invented wristwatches. Yeah, exactly. And I thought that was going to, I was like, okay, all right. Yeah, just uh, assume that they invented everything, okay? All the stuff. Maybe they even invented DC Comics superheroes because weirdly enough, this movie mentions not one, but two DC Comics characters, Batman and Superman. That's Superman with the cape and you're shooting laser beams out of your eyes. I was kind of thrown by that. This is a confirmation that not only does superhero fiction exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but specifically DC superheroes exist. Even in a world where superheroes are real, it stands to reason that humanity would at some point want to tell stories about larger-than-life beings. I think it's in our nature, from Beowulf and Hercules to the Gollum or the thing. Well, the whole movie sets up a world in which the Eternals are the inspiration for mythological figures like Athena, Icarus, or, or Gilgamesh. You know, the Eternals influence how humanity creates its deities and its heroes. Kingo even goes so far as to become a Bollywood superstar, portraying superheroes and spies in films across multiple decades. And day, 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 day. Hold on, hold on. Wait, okay. What if Eternals is saying that Icarus, with his flying and good looks and laser eyes, inspired the Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster of the Marvel Universe to create Superman? Are you saying that? Is that yes. what you're saying right yes. now? Yes, yes, Marvel is cucking DC by saying Superman ripped off their own hero. Yes, but Icarus is not the hero of Eternals. Cersei is. Icarus is the villain because his sense of right and wrong is so warped by his devotion to his mission. Which is very, very similar to Superman's role in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Icarus is actually a very clever satire of Superman and all DC comics. <laughs> Dave, this theory is so good that it might explode out of the Earth's core and swallow this entire podcast. I really hope it doesn't do that. I like catching up with you every week. Hey, how's your wife? Oh, she's great. Thanks for asking. How, oh, how, how's the son? It's funny you ask because he's really getting into Ghostbusters and we've got this really big guest coming up for that. Did you hear we're interviewing Dan? Oh! Oh, shit! Oh, oh it's happening! The emergence! A hot take is being born! We're gonna run for cover before this fucker pops out of the womb. When we return, we'll talk to Polygon Susanna Polo about Jack Kirby, DC Marvel crossovers, and Superman parodies. Stick with us, please, God. I gotta go watch some Simpsons. BRB! It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. We've survived the emergence. Jonah finished his Simpsons episode. New kids on the black. <laughs> Great episode. Now is the time for us to test this little hypothesis of ours with our special guest. Our first ever two-time guest, Polygon's comics editor, Susanna Polo. We had Susanna on for our Justice League episode, so she's become our go-to Superman expert. Susanna, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hey, guys. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's nice to know that we didn't scare you off the last time and that you felt like uh, humoring us and our ridiculousness yet again. Oh, I'm very brave. I'm a very brave person. (laughs) Well, that's where you and I differ. (laughs) Okay, so here we go with the show. There are two different references to DC Comics characters in this movie. One would have felt like, okay, that's kind of a cute thing. Two seems deliberate. The question that's going to kind of give us the baseline here is, does this mean that DC Comics exists within the MCU? Well, it's gotta, right? Like, how else do these characters know who Batman is? The fictional character Batman. I don't think we can say that Batman exists as a person who fights crime in the MCU. Fair. I think the only thing we can conclude from this is that Batman comics and Superman comics exist in the MCU. The question is, are they making Batman movies? Did the Snyder Cut happen inside the MCU? Did DC Comics fit the blip into the canon of their comics? These are the questions that that left me whispering WTF behind my mask in the theater and like completely missing the rest of that scene. Yeah, I was so blown away by the brazenness of it. Not that it was a negative thing, but just like, oh, wow, you guys are going there more than once. But the figure, the central figure, the creator of Eternals is Jack Kirby. And Jack worked for both DC and Marvel. Can you give us a little bit of backstory and history on Jack Kirby's significance to those two companies? Sure. I mean, so Jack Kirby is, I think we hear a lot about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby is really the other side of the Stanley coin at Marvel. But maybe even more in a way, like Stan was known for his personality, but Kirby really put his mark on comics through his visual style. And not just in the way he clothed characters, but in the way that he choreographed fight scenes in the size of the panels they used. And there's a certain extent to which where you can read comics for years and then you finally go back like I did and read because I'm mostly a DC person and Kirby mostly worked at Marvel. And you go back and read Kirby at like first sources and like his actual books and not the stuff that's based on what he's doing. And it's like being able to see the matrix. It's like all of a sudden you realize that everybody who came after this guy has been trying to do the stuff that this guy did because he was just so original for his time. He just pushed superhero comics in a direction that became so indelible that everybody else just tried to do it. So Jack Kirby is the kind of forgotten son of Marvel. But then he goes to DC, he kind of turns his back on all of those people and goes to DC as this disgruntled person. What did he accomplish? What did he do when he was at DC? So around 1970, Jack Kirby got really fed up with the way he was being treated at Marvel. He felt like he wasn't being given credit, felt like he wasn't being given enough money. And he decided to cut ties with Marvel after, you know, to be clear, like co-creating the Fantastic Four and the X-Men and in here, you know, just like you name it, Thor, he's said to have had a hand in like Spider-Man, like he's he defined the Marvel Universe as much as Stan did in the 1960s. And in 1970, 
He gets real fed up with it and he decides to go work for DC exclusively instead. This is a big coup for DC, obviously. And they're like, hey, Jack, you can do basically anything. And he's like, well, cool. I don't want to put anyone out of a job. So give me your lowest selling title that you were going to cancel anyway. And then also give me just some books to do whatever I want to do in them. And so he picks up uh, this comic called Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen. And he starts making this thing called The Fourth World, which is a series of comics that are all sort of have some interlocking characters. And those characters are what I call they're a shaggy God story, which Kirby really liked. I think I think outside of, you know, like his visual aesthetic and sort of his, his general, like his, his comics language that he used, the thing that crops up in Jack Kirby's work over and over and over again is he's really into this idea of superheroes as God, superheroes that are these immortal beings that have been alive since the dawn of time and they inspired mythology. And Fourth World kind of comes out of that. Fourth World is an idea that he had pitched to Marvel saying like, hey, we've been teasing Ragnarok and Thor forever. I want to actually make Ragnarok happen. I want to kill all of the Asgardians. And then the, that will unleash this wave of divine energy and the divine energy will become a new pantheon of gods. And those will be our new characters. So the Fourth World that he does at DC is implied to be these gods that were created when the Norse pantheon was destroyed. And it's this big cosmic, like it's it's kind of really difficult to compare to anything else because there isn't a lot like the fourth world anywhere else in comics, except kind of with the internals and the inhumans, which are Kirby's other like, let's make these very, very old super powered characters that may have inspired figures like Medusa and Zeus and Icarus and Mercury. So the fourth world and the new gods are this thing that Kirby does at DC. And it does sound, you know, very similar to Thanos and the Eternals and the Inhumans and all of these sort of super cosmic characters that exist, you know, on top of the tangible world that we understand. The Iron Man's, the the Captain Marvel's, there's something even more ridiculous and, and grandiose up there. So was there ever a point when DC and Marvel were like, hey, these this Dark Side guy and this Thanos guy are kind of the same? Well, it's funny you ask that because Eternals was made after the New Gods. Kirby eventually went back to Marvel and they were like, okay, Jack, do your own thing again. Like, just make us something. And he made the Eternals, who are quite similar to the New Gods. They are like the Inhumans. They've been on Earth for a very long time. And they all have like these sort of like, oh, yes, you know, my name's Makari. But, you know, they mispronounced it when they wrote down the myth. And they call me Mercury kind of origins. And the Turtles never really took off at Marvel in the way that the Fourth World took off at DC. I think in part because the Fourth World always kept coming back because Darkseid became such a compelling Superman villain that everybody just sort of kept bringing it back. And also I think maybe because it was the only like super Jack Kirby aesthetic thing that DC had to play with. And that aesthetic is just really cool and compelling and different and weird. Eternals never really became a big deal at Marvel. Uh, Arguably the biggest thing that happened in the Eternals comics is that Kirby created the Celestials, which then would crop up occasionally in a lot of other Marvel comics when you needed just sort of like an ineffable but not necessarily evil like cosmic force to throw characters up against. A nice standard for God, you know, like we can't really talk about Jesus and stuff like that. But what if we had this guy who was called Arishim? Yeah, and the Marvel Universe has an entire patchwork of, of so-called omnipotent beings that 
is we won't go into here. The Celestials are one of them. But Kirby didn't create Thanos. Thanos is not originally one of the Eternals. Thanos was created a little while later by Jim Starlin, who was not even creating, a, intending to create extra Eternals characters. He was creating these a set of characters called the Titans that were from Saturn's moon of Titan. And he very deliberately was like, I want to do some fourth world stuff and rub the serial numbers off it and do it in the Marvel universe. And he brought it to his editor who looked at this plan he had for this big bad guy who was obsessed with death, or who's like skinny and sort of like sat in the chair all the time. And he was like, hey, this is just Metron from the fourth world. And if you're going to crib off the fourth world, you should crib off the good character. <laughs> Just make him a rip off of dark side. And so Thanos became this big burly guy in strange armor who was obsessed with death. And later on, after all of that, the Titans, Thanos is a Titan, were retconned to be an offshoot of Earth's Eternals. And so it was all just folded in. <laughs> this knockoff of the fourth world became part of the stuff that Jack Kirby had created after the fourth world. And anyway, we could have had a fourth world movie from Ava DuVernay, but instead Eternals came out and now everybody thinks that Darkseid is a ripoff of Thanos. And no, I don't have a bug up my butt about that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's a remarkably incestuous business, mm -hmm. the comic books industry, especially the history, you know, going back into, into the mid-century and all that stuff. But I want to talk about the incestuousness of this movie because of those aforementioned references to Superman and Batman. We've established DC Comics in some form exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But what's interesting is that this movie, as the Eternals comic books do, say that human myth is related to these Eternals, that the Eternals are the, the basis for all of this mythology across time. Icarus is Icarus. He flies too close to the sun. At the end of the movie, he flies into the sun to kill himself, which is uh, truly maybe taking it too far. You know what? Just uh, there's got to be some other way to do this besides this grandiose thing. But uh, I wonder, because Superman exists, because he's so similar to Icarus in powers and his aesthetic, could you say that in the Eternals movie, in the cinematic universe of Marvel, that Icarus was the inspiration for Superman. Oh, interesting. I don't know. I feel like you could make that argument. It seems like a sly sort of dig at DC. You'd have to be like, be like, oh, you know, Siegel and Schuster were, you know, in this one place and they saw Icarus once and then they, they were like, oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah. Uh, we should print that. I think you, you could write that fanfic, I think. There are a lot of takes on Superman and sort of s satirical looks at Superman across comic books history. And, and of course, we talked about Superman on our Justice League episode and, and talked about what he means and, and why he's an outsider. But in a lot of ways, in a lot of interpretations of the character, he is not an outsider. He becomes a figure of, the, of authority, of the status quo. And Icarus certainly in this movie is doing that. He's the one character that says, no, we need to do what Erisham tells us to do because he's our boss <laughs> and I, we follow the rules around here. And that is similar, I think, in a lot of ways to Superman in Dark Knight Returns. He functions as this arm of the state and Erisham is the state in, the, in relation to Eternals. Do you think that there's any sort of parody going on here, looking at Superman through the lens of this character that Jack Kirby created for Marvel. I think it's a kind of convergent evolution where like if you're going to tell a story about gods, 
and the obligations that they have to human beings. If you're going to tell a story about the idea of what people should do with the great power that they have, you're necessarily going to run up against some of the themes that we've seen in Superman cinema over the past like couple of decades. I think I would say that the Eternals is definitely making a kind of Superman movie movie. I don't know if it's making a Superman movie, if that makes sense. I feel like there's a lot more to Superman in comics than we have necessarily seen in films in the past couple of decades. Yeah. And Superman stories are there. I mean, they're always a little bit about what to do with power, but they're not always about when Superman shows up and he's a tool of the state. It's usually because he's not the main character. (laughs) So there's still a lot of Superman stories where he is the main character and we need to to see things from his point of view. And those are usually not the ones where he's positioned as a bad guy. But I think, yeah, the, the Eternals is definitely grappling with the same kind of ideas that we see in Superman cinema. And then on top of it, we have the fact that Icarus has like a very standard set of superhero powers which because superman is like the genre founder that is a basic tool set of being a superhero you know like laser vision not so much but flight definitely you know like we see flight is so encoded in our like media language as as representing power that like that's what the final scene of the matrix is that we understand that neo has ascended to a kind of superhero dumb because the last shot in the movie is him stepping out of a phone booth and zooming into the air and i think that that one of the things the marvel cinematic universe does that is has done that is kind of unique is that we forget about that because there are not a lot of superheroes that fly in the mcu it's Icarus and Captain Marvel who are those people who just, you know, step into the air and stay there in a way that like a lot of DC superheroes still do, but not so many Marvel. Yeah, I, I've i seen this bandied about on Twitter a little bit that uh, Eternals is the first Marvel movie to be a DC movie that in a lot of ways, this is their take on those things. And and Zack Snyder, the proud papa of the, the first phase of the DC extended universe he he's often quoted as saying that he sees the dc characters as gods as you know mythological beings that are greater than us and what i think was so appealing to people about marvel was that these people were us that iron man represented parts of our personality that uh spider-man represented our our youth and our, our struggles and our, our want to fit in and all of that stuff and this is a movie that takes that godlike being and has something to say about it in the way that the dc the, the snyder dc movies had something to say about it so i wonder if this was so like intentional it feels intentional it feels like this is marvel commenting on things in, in a very meta textual sort of film. I want to end this by just trying to figure out if this is actually really, really like fourth level thinking, fourth world thinking. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yes. So Kirby made the Eternals and they didn't really hit big in the way that the fourth world did. 
Um, they sort of lay sort of fallow for a while. Celestials came back, you know, Thanos happened on the Titans. But the next time that they really sort of like became very visible and a writer stepped in to actually try and do stuff with them in a notable way was Neil Gaiman stepped in. You know, he's the Sandman guy. He's the power of story guy. He's very interested in mythology and folklore and, and the power of all of that. And so his Eternals, is, it's definitely like the Eternals story more than even like Kirby's original Eternals stuff, which is extremely weird uni mind comes direct from Jack Kirby. He was doing a lot of LSD during this time, right? When he was, uh, that's the rumor <laughs> I heard. Well, Kirby liked his cigars, so. Laced with LSD. <laughs> <laughs> I think, honestly, I think Kirby was just, you know, you become a workaholic to the extent that you're just any idea. Just put something on the page. That's how we make this show. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it gets real weird, as you guys have experienced. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kirby is the ultimate galaxy brain guy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's, that's just another name for the uni mind. So anyway, we're talking about metatextual. I'll say that these, the thing about the Eternals is they also have the celestials above them. They, and to the extent to which that they are unrelatable and unknowable to humans, the celestials are a step above that to the Eternals. So the entire concept comes baked in with these ideas about faith and order and questions about the universe. And I think that that any adaptation of the Eternals that had anything at all to do with what the comics have been like, were necessarily going to play with those ideas. And that makes the Eternals more mythological than a lot of other stuff in Marvel comics, at least the stuff that Marvel has been known for. And that I think is really what makes it feel like DC. Well, I, I could talk about this forever. I feel like you could too, Susanna. This is an endlessly fascinating topic and a thing that I think makes Eternals worth revisiting if you've seen it already or if you haven't seen it, go see it. This is a movie that's got a lot going on. It's real fun. It's a perfect Galaxy Brain movie from the mind of a, a perfect Galaxy Brain writer in Jack Kirby. So thank you again, Susanna, for coming back on and talking to us. We'll have to have you back on for Spider-Man. Even though you're a DC person... Spider-Man, come on. Yeah, no, no, listen, Peter Parker is a good boy. <laughs> yeah. Just like my new favorite good boy, my big, big, big fr red friend, Arashem, the giant robot god. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to talk about Clifford. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a robot, he's a real dog, Jonah. Well, you know, dog is just god backwards, so... Oh! oh! And that is a real galaxy brain moment today, folks. <laughs> Thank you, Susanna, we'll speak soon. Each week, we wrap up the show with a Galaxy Brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one from Phoebe, who lives in Florida. Hey, guys. This is Phoebe from Florida, and I have a take on the DreamWorks animated film Shark Tale. I think, first and foremost, that Shark Tale is a coming-out story. We have Lenny the Shark, who has this coming-out sequence where he reveals to his father that he's a vegetarian, and it does not go well. But I want to take it a step further and say that it's specifically a trans narrative. Part of Lenny's story is that he needs to disappear, and through faking his death, he reemerges under the name Sebastian, disguised as a dolphin, so that he can live how he wants. I think specifically this idea of recreating oneself and struggling to break away from the expectations of our parents is especially fitting to the trans narrative, and is the reason why I would argue that this movie is specifically reflective of the trans experience, not just a coming out story. That's my take. I could probably talk about this for hours, but I'll keep it at that. Thanks, guys. I really love the podcast. Oh, thank you, Phoebe. Wow, that's incredible. Now I feel like I should watch Shark's Tale. <laughs> yeah, Shark Tale is not a movie that I would think about very often for any reason, but 
with this perspective, I feel like it's worth diving in. There are a lot of movies that I love that uh, I've come to find out recently have a trans narrative or, or are inspiring to the trans community. Doctor Who is one of those things. We talked about Doctor Who earlier. It's a, a show about transformation. and Also, RoboCop is a movie that I recently found out has a lot of resonance to the trans community because of identity, questions of identity and who are you and, and who decides who you get to be. So this is a, a really great take. I have nothing funny or silly to say about it. I think it's just a really smart, thoughtful way to look at a movie like that. That was really nice. And uh, the only thing I could really say that I probably didn't watch Shark Tale uh, was because the billboards around it, their tagline for it was see it, C spelled S-E-A. And I said, fuck you. <laughs> well, this just goes to show you folks that sometimes you can't judge a movie by its poster and you need to just go see more movies. Movies exactly. are awesome. Who did the tagline for that? Kylie, the producer of this show? <laughs> oh, boy, there's a horse dragging her through the town square right now. That's rude. If you want to call in, we'd love to hear your galaxy brain take on next week's episode topic, the 25th anniversary of my favorite Star Trek movie, Star Trek First Contact. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us qualify to refinance our home loan. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, all Dave's dreams are coming true, and we are celebrating the 25th birthday of Star Trek First Contact. And I'm going to put on a suit. Like a birthday suit? That's code for nudity. I would never imply such things. Nudity is not allowed on Galaxy Brains. It's in your contract. <laughs> Funny, Dave. You know I never read my contracts. I can tell you one thing. This contract you have is almost as long as these credits. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant. And Russ Frustick is a director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Malizek who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. Teach me how to druid. 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 All my bitches love me. All my bitches love me. You ain't fucking with my daddy.